0: Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. And we gather every Sunday morning in person and online at 10.30 a.m. Now, if you are in person with us during the month of July, we are outside Bring a lawn chair, bring a beach blanket, we have pop-up tents for shade, um, and come on out for our outdoor Church in the Field service. It's really chill, laid back, people are hanging out, it's a good time. Next Sunday, after church, we're going to have a church lunch, Uh, so we'll have um, some water stuff out, like... little kiddie pools and things for the kids to splash around in. Uh, We'll have things like croquet and and, uh, badminton set up for the adults. Uh, We'll have food and we'll be hanging out. So come on out for our church lunch in the field after service next Sunday. Also, uh, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter 15. Now, I always say if you have a Bible, because sometimes people you know, forget to bring them on Sunday mornings, but the truth is you can pause this video and just search Matthew 15 in Google and you'll find it real easy. Um, but Matthew 15 says this, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Okay, so what's going on here? Pharisees, remember, are we we'd call them fundamentalists. We would think of them as evangelicals. We would think of them as the conservative religious people. The other religious group that gets mentioned in the uh, New Testament is the Sadducees, and we would think of them as the liberal or progressive type of churches. You know, basically you could think of the Sadducees like a universal uh, Unitarian church or a United Methodist church or, or what have you. And the Pharisees, they're like that Southern Baptist church down the road, right? Um, and so that's kind of the two things. So these Pharisees, they're the really strict observers of the religious law. And then the, the scribes, the teachers of the law, these people who are really concerned with getting everything right They come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? Now, we would think, oh, that's kind of gross. Why aren't they washing their hands before they eat? Modern understandings of hygiene aside, this is not about proper hygiene, although you should wash your hands before you eat, and it's gross if you don't. But modern understandings of hygiene aside— What they are actually talking about is these traditional religious washing ceremonies and rituals. You wash your hands a certain ceremonial way before you eat your meal. There are different types of rules. There are written rules, there are unwritten rules. Uh, I was thinking about some written rules. All right, Uh, I'm facing Hill Road right now. There's a speed limit sign, 30 miles an hour on Hill Road. It's clearly posted. That's a written rule. It's posted. It's posted multiple places. It is written down. Everyone can see it. There's the speed limit. But there's an unwritten rule with speed limits, right? If you're going down the freeway and the speed limit says 60 miles an hour and you're doing 66 miles an hour, the chances are that nobody's going to pull you over because there is an unwritten rule in our society that says you can do 10% over and you're not in any trouble, right? I remember when I was 16, I got my driver's license and my insurance agent, well, my parents insurance agent, set me down and said, Adam, if you get pulled over for doing 32 miles in a 30 mile an hour zone, no problem. I'm, I, heck, I, I'll pay the ticket. But Adam, if you Get pulled over for doing 40 and a 25, you're done. I'm dropping you from the insurance. What's the difference? Both are speeding, both are breaking the law, except that we have these unwritten rules in our society where we say, hey, if it's a 30 and you're going 33, nobody's gonna care. If it's a 60 and you're going 66, probably not gonna get pulled over, right? We understand these rules. Now in Oregon, of course, if the speed limit is 55 and then you see people doing an 80 and you go, wait, what? And yet somehow I, I, I still do not understand how that works. It's really simple. In California and Washington, 10% and you're fine. In Oregon, it's like 55 is the speed limit and then people are going 75, 80. I haven't figured that one out yet. I've lived here for five years. I was thinking about other unwritten or written rules. Here's an interesting one. Pants. You know, I grew up in a church that had very little in the way of dress code. It was just however you want to dress, dress that way. But pants are a funny thing. I've heard a story in multiple times of our church, which used to be a more traditional kind of church. And and honestly, like, uh, I think if you were to, like, give people in our church, like, 50 years ago, a vision of me... And, and our church on a normal Sunday morning, they'd be like, what went wrong, okay? There was an unwritten rule back in the day that women could not wear jeans on a Sunday morning. If you showed up to church on Sunday morning, you better be wearing a skirt or a dress. That was an unwritten rule. I've been told that. And then the previous pastor, his wife, Sue, who's a rock star, she wore pants. She wore jeans to church on a Sunday morning, And said, yeah, that's not a big deal. I wear wear jeans every other day of the week. I might as well wear them on Sunday morning. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, women can wear jeans again, right? But here's the funny thing. I said I grew up in a church that didn't have much in the way of dress code. But I guarantee that if somebody had shown up on a Sunday morning without pants, they would have been told, you need to put pants on. Well, that's a silly thing to say. Of course you do. But you know, in some places, they have signs, no shoes, no shirt, no service, We don't have anything written down. There's nowhere in our bylaws that say that. There's nowhere written anywhere in the church building or outside the church building that says you need to wear pants. But we all understand there is a societal social contract. We all understand you got to wear pants if you're coming in here. Nobody nobody would be shocked if somebody came in with no pants on and we said, hey, you got to go home and put some pants on, okay? Uh, That's just an understanding. There's written rules and there's unwritten rules. I I have a friend who was uh, at a church, started going to a church, and they had very little dress code, right? Like, just however you want to dress. And it was in California, near the beach, summertime. Every dude in the church is wearing shorts and flip-flops and a shirt, you know, right? Standard, you know, t-shirt or a button-up shirt, doesn't matter. You know, shirt of some kind, pants, flip-flops. Every person, right? Well, he's a guitar player, so he gets asked uh, to be in the worship band. So he goes up on stage one Sunday morning, and he's wearing a button-up shirt, shorts, and flip-flops. And somebody afterwards pulls him aside and says, hey, you know what? In the future, you really need to wear pants. What do you mean? Every other guy in this room is wearing shorts and flip-flops. What's wrong with that? Yes, but on the stage. Where is that in the rules? It's these unwritten rules. Written rules, unwritten rules. And then on top of that, we have different types of written or unwritten rules. We have procedural rules. You know, uh, if you get into a, um, like a decision-making thing, like sometimes I have to go to like board meetings for different things. I've sat, uh, it's just kind of weird. It's like the most adult thing I've ever done. I remember the first time I got added to the board of something, and I've sat on the board of a couple different nonprofits and, um, and uh, been, on the, uh, been on some councils and denominational teams and things, and we have to follow like procedural rules. Oh, I'm sorry. We can't do that. We actually have to go back and somebody didn't second it. So we have to make sure somebody seconds it. And then we have to have discussion and then we can motion that a vote is made. And it's this whole procedural rule that you have to follow. There's legal rules, right? Like, you know what, that, that's the law here. But then there's like, uh, like a speed limit, right? There's unwritten rules about how that law is observed. There's cultural rules. There's no procedural rule anywhere. There's no legal rule anywhere, but there are cultural rules, like that church my friend was going to in California, where if you were on stage, you couldn't wear shorts, or our church, you know, 30, 40 years ago, where it was like, you know, women had to wear uh, dresses or skirts. These were just these unspoken cultural rules. Then there are moral rules, right? Like there's no law there's no procedural, there's no cultural thing, but you know that's wrong. And there's always somebody that's like, well, yeah, there's no law. I can get away with it. And everybody, everybody's going, dude, what are you doing? Like, yes, that's not against the law. Yes, there's no procedural rule against it, but what are you doing? And sometimes they're written down and sometimes they are just assumed moral rules. And this exists in secular as well as religious parts of society. You might say secular society has moral rules. Absolutely. I was talking to a friend this week who said that our society is becoming increasingly immoral. And I said, I have to disagree with you. And he said, really, why is that? And I said, I actually believe that America is incredibly moralistic. Some of the most moralistic people I know are not religious people. They're secular atheists. Friends of mine who are not living in any way, shape, or form within the Judeo-Christian ethic. But they live in a very strict and defined moral code within the realm of their secularism. And he thought about it and he said, I think, I think I get what you're saying. I think you might be right about that. It's just a different way of saying it. I was like, exactly. America has not left morality for immorality. America has just taken and shifted from one moral code to another. Now, I personally believe that any previous and current moral codes that America lived by was still immoral in the eyes of God, but that's a whole other thing. And then when you add religion to the mix, we have to figure out, are there rules that are written and unwritten? Is it a procedural rule? So like, you know what, this is the rule that we care about if it's something important. And this happens all the time. Like sometimes in church, decisions get made really easy. Like, um, you know, there are times where, uh, the trustees, Brandon and Kaylee and I, will we'll just be talking and we just make a decision by talking. And then sometimes there's like a, big imp- like a big important decision and then we need the church council to vote on it. Like these things happen, uh, you know, and then we have to follow the procedures of somebody motions, somebody seconds it, we discuss, we vote, motion passes, motion dec- you know, fails. There's procedural rules, there's legal rules, there's cultural rules, there's all those. But we have to figure out, in addition to all of that, written, unwritten, procedural, legal, cultural, moral. In addition to all that, when it gets religion involved, you have to figure out, is this a human-made religious rule or is it a divine command? Is it from God? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law come to Jesus and they say, why are your disciples not following the traditions of the elders? They aren't talking about a command that came from God. They are talking about a tradition that was developed over the centuries. And sometimes they're written down, sometimes they're not. In this case, it was written down in in, uh, the writings and the teachings of the rabbis. And they're coming after Jesus and saying, what's wrong with your disciples? Interestingly, in a different place, in Luke chapter 11, another Pharisee comes after Jesus himself for doing the same thing. That Jesus comes to this Pharisee's house, but he doesn't observe the uh, religious, uh, cultural uh, teachings of the elders, not the teachings of, commands of God, but the teachings of the rabbis, and he doesn't observe the hand-washing ritual. So the reason Jesus' disciples are ignoring these rules is because they're just following their master. Jesus was ignoring those rules. Is it a human rule, or is it a divine rule? the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are coming after Jesus for not observing their human-made rules. So then Jesus replies in verse 3, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? So he is pushing back. You guys say, why are we not observing the commands of the traditions of the elders? But I'm asking you, Jesus asking the Pharisees, why are you breaking the commands of God for the traditions of the elders? What does he mean by that? Well, verse 4, for God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. And here he quotes from the law of God, Exodus chapter 21 and Leviticus chapter 20. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and they worship me in vain. And their teachings are merely human rules. Quoting the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 29. Then Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the root. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. All right. So Jesus pushes back and he says, here's a tradition of your elders. There's a tradition of your elders and it was called Corban. You could declare something Corban. It was like a legal term. And it was basically like what it would be like in our society is you take the money that you should have used to take care of somebody that you have a responsibility towards. In this case, Jesus is speaking of elderly parents, but it could go to anything. You take the money that you, should, uh, that you could use to help somebody that you have an obligation towards, and you declare it used for God. You could declare it Corbin. And what it would be like, and this is a true story, I know somebody who had uh, an inheritance left to them when they were a child. And instead of putting it in a college fund or a savings account or setting it aside for the use of that child that the money had been left to, their parents took it and started a nonprofit. And instead of helping their child, which was what the money was supposed to be for, the parents used the, nonprofit, uh, the money in the nonprofit for the purposes that they wanted to accomplish. Jesus is saying the same thing. Calling something Corbin, dedicating it to God in this case, is the same as somebody taking money that was meant to take care of an elderly parent, a, a, a relative in need, a child, and then putting it into a, a nonprofit or some kind of trust or charitable foundation saying, I'm sorry, I can't help you. The money is now in this nonprofit corporation. We can't use it for helping you. It's only to be used for this thing that I care about. So Jesus is saying here, the law of God says to honor your father and mother, but you've created this tradition in your elders that you can then take this money, and instead of helping them, you can use it, oh, I, I'm sorry, I can't. And then you make a big show of the money that you've set aside to help build the synagogue or to give to the temple or whatever, and you can let everyone, oh, yes, uh, I created this nonprofit, I'm really passionate about this foundation that I created, and then you find out, oh, what about all these other people that you should have been taking care of? You know, what about these these. Uh, children you've never acknowledged, or elderly parents that you've left to rot. So Jesus is calling them out. Doctors have this rule, right? Do no harm. It's part of the Hippocratic Oath. Doctors, do no harm. Christians, do no harm. Followers of Jesus, do no harm. It is a fair question from verse 6 to ask ourselves, are there rules in the church, they're not the commands of God, that we are holding to or holding up that are actually causing harm? We talked about this a few weeks ago, but one of the things I found very interesting is I, uh, a couple years ago I revisited church history in an in a intensive way for my graduate uh, work, was the reasoning behind uh, Catholic priests being celibate, not marrying. And honestly, the reason why they created that rule in that moment actually made a lot of sense. And it was dealing with an issue that was a real issue and had real uh, hurts being caused. And so for that moment and that time and that place in that culture, it actually made a lot of sense. The problem was that that rule kept going and kept going and kept going and no longer made sense, and now I believe it's actually causing harm. There are rules, things that were in place. Maybe it's an unwritten cultural rule, and everybody in the culture unspoken agreed to it, but now times have changed, and it's not a biblical commandment. It's not something that God says, do this or don't do this. It's just something that a previous generation had a shared assumption about and now the church is still upholding that rule even though the current generation does not hold that same shared assumption and it's now causing harm. Why? Because judgment and condemnation are being heaped onto that generation. Somebody might look at a younger Christian and say, can you believe what they do or what they don't do? Is there a biblical reason for them to do or not do that thing? Well, that's just how we've always done it. And that's the same thing that's happening here. The Pharisees are heaping condemnation onto the disciples of Jesus, not for breaking the law of God, but for breaking a cultural tradition from a previous era. How are we holding up rules that cause harm? And then, of course, the other question is, how do we define harm? That's a process that's to be worked through, I believe, together. Uh, as a collective group of churches and our our family of churches and together as a family here at Faith on Hill. But I do know this. We can see where things are building up or where things are causing harm and we can work through those things together. I was talking uh, to a friend recently and we were talking about some uh, biblical ideas about gender roles. And we were on different points of view on this idea or this topic. But one of the things that we both agreed on was that whatever the right position is on that issue, in many places in the church, we don't know how to live biblically without living in uh, misogyny and without putting women down in an unbiblical way. And so if it's a choice between having a correct biblical view on gender roles or a choice uh, between, you know, misogyny. Let's go against misogyny. Let's go against the thing that is causing real harm. How do you define harm? That's another interesting question, which we'll get to in a minute. So put a a pin there. We're going to come back to that. And then after Jesus teaches the people these things, the disciples come up to him and say, hey, Jesus, verse 13 and 14, uh, did you know that the the Pharisees really did not like that teaching that you just gave? Uh, They were really offended. What does Jesus say? He says, leave the dead things behind. Does Jesus care about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Absolutely. He died for them. He died for them. Some of those very Pharisees and teachers of the law eventually placed their faith in Jesus. We are told both in the Gospels and the book of Acts, some of these very people gave up their religious falseness and found genuine faith and forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, leave the dead things behind. There, Remember I said a minute ago that some of the most moralistic you know, religious moralistic type people I know are actually secular and progressive people that I know. There are religious people that want to hold us down with rules written and unwritten that are not from God, that are causing harm. And they're somewhat easy to identify. There are also secular people that want to hold us down and maybe hold us to rules that we're not obligated to. I don't know how many times I have seen somebody who's not a Christian say, if you were a true Christian, you would do this. Think about that. Think about that. If you were a true Christian, you would do this. Well, if you're not a Christian, how would you know? I am held against what God says, not what somebody thinks I should do or that you should do. So whether it's a religious person in the guise of religious Christianity or some other religious group, because there are, there are other religious groups that look at Christianity and say, you guys aren't keeping up the standards you should, whatever that is. And there are secular people who for different reasons and in different ways do the exact same thing. And Jesus says, leave it behind. Walk away from this. That which is bringing people into condemnation, that which is causing harm, that which to keep these rules, I would have to then defy the law of God. For to keep your rule and to appease your moral code, whether it is in the form of the Judeo-Christian ethic or in the form of American secularism, to keep your code, I would have to defy the commands of God. Jesus says, leave it behind. And then he says, these are the things that really matter. In verse, thir- uh, verse 14, excuse me, 15, Peter says, explain the parable to us then. In verse 16, he says, are you still so dull? Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth and goes into the stomach and then goes out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, False testimony and slander, these are what defile a person. Eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Friends, I know Christians to this day who want to take us back to some old covenant religious lifestyle. Uh, They want us to, you know, basically no bacon, no shrimp. I know other people from different religions who would say, you are not as holy holy or as enlightened as you should be because you don't follow our dietary customs. Jesus says, it's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. And then he gives a list of things. Now, it's not a definitive list, but it's a general idea of these are the things that matter to God. It is interesting to me that adultery and sexual immorality are listed with and alongside slander, listed with and alongside false testimony, lying. It's interesting to me that these are given the same place. Slander and lies are given the same place as adultery, theft, and immorality. Here's, here's the heart of what Jesus is trying to get at. He is telling us, leave behind the dead things. And for some of us, leaving behind the dead things means we leave behind the old religious laws that we might have grown up with for some of us leaving behind the dead things is walking away from the secular morality of this world you know as we came from the world into faith in Jesus and now we leave behind those old things and say what is it that God wants because that's what I want and so different people will have different issues You know, there will be plenty of people that would read this list and say, yeah, murder's bad. Literally everyone agrees with that, right? Murder, bad. You come from outside of the church and become a Christian, or you grow up inside the church and you're all religious, and then you realize, I need a savior, so you become a Christian. Murder's bad. And then the religious people might go, oh yeah, adultery is bad. Sexual immorality, bad. Those are bad things. Somebody from outside the world might go, I I struggle with why that's bad. Let's be honest about that. Okay, but Jesus says they're bad. Then somebody from inside the church walls might go, okay, yeah, false testimony's bad, lying's bad. Yet there are things that seem to be okay for Christians to lie about. There are things that it seems to be okay for Christians to slander about. It's amazing. The, the Bible talks about honoring and praying for the governing authorities, and yet there are Christians. I have been in meetings. I remember last year I was in a meeting of a bunch of pastors, and there was somebody who was just going off uh, name-calling and slandering and, and being incredibly disrespectful towards the governor. Now, I don't care what you think of the governor and whether you voted or didn't vote for them or whatever, but I, I remember saying in that meeting, hey. The governor is the governor. Can we at least honor the scripture where it says pray and honor the governing authorities? Pray for and honor the governing authorities. Let's just speak respectfully of the governor. Cool story, actually. That, that same pastor called me up later and said, you know what? You were right. I was wrong, and I, I, I appreciated you. I was not expecting that response, by the way. We can get away with things in, inside the church and think it's not a big deal, and yet I have seen Christians slander. I have seen Christians lie, like things that are blatant, outright lies. And I've seen Christians post them, nonstop some of them, for the last couple years on social media. And we don't care, and we think, oh, well, we're not like the world and their sinfulness. And yet Jesus lists slander and lies equally to adultery and immorality. The core of the gospel, I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and it says that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. When we surrender ourselves to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God comes in Romans 8 talks all about this. It's my favorite chapter in the Bible. If you're looking for something to read today, read Romans 8. Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit comes in and it brings our souls, our spirits from death into life in Jesus. That when, you know, we're baptized physically in water, it is a symbolic act symbolizing that the Holy Spirit has come and baptized us spiritually into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so when we are a true Christian, we are a new person. I'm not that old person anymore. So all of the things Jesus is talking about as he does his work in our lives, those things are the things we don't want anymore. I believe that we should care about the righteousness of God for ourselves. We should read this list and say, do I have murder in my heart? And we know that Jesus, he said, if you had hate in your heart, it's like you've murdered somebody. Do I have hate within me? Have I given myself over to hate, to coveting, to lust, to lies, to slander? Have I given myself over? Jesus, free me and let your righteousness be in my life. I'm concerned about the righteousness of God for my own heart. Religious people, whether they're secular or church-based, religious people will be concerned about others observing their moral code. People who are true Christians say, Jesus, make me like you through the power of your Holy Spirit. Oh God, will, will you change my life? Will you make it so that it is true that the old life of sin is gone and the new life has begun in Jesus? I care about the righteousness of God in my own life. I'm not trying to inspect the lives of others. That's God's business. That's your business. I'm, I'm worried about myself. At the same time, I do believe that Christians should model the righteousness of God in humility, not in pride, in humility for the good of others. I want my kids to see the righteousness of God modeled in my life. I want my neighbors to see the righteousness of God modeled in my life. I want people that I interact with to see the righteousness of God modeled in my life. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But what happens if, you know, everybody's slandering everybody else and then you just say, I'm not interested in that. What happens if everyone else is given into immorality and you just say, you know what? That's not for me. What happens if, if people are prideful and they will not admit that they are wrong and you as a Christian concerned with the righteousness of God say, I was wrong. I didn't act right there. And I'm sorry. And not only am I sorry, but I am changing how I act so that in the future I do walk in the ways of God. And, and it's not even with words, you know, you just do it. I'm concerned about the righteousness of God, not in the lives of others. That's between God and them but in my own life. And I want to model it in humility as best I can for the good of others. Jesus is calling people out against a bunch of religious rules. And all of us could have rules that we are unintentionally enforcing on other people, whether we realize it or not. Maybe we're holding somebody up to a moralistic religious standard that God could care less about or that's not helpful to somebody else. God's like, yeah, I'm going to deal with that in their life, but not right now. i got five other things i got to deal with. Can you back off? Or maybe you're holding somebody up to a secular moralistic standard. Why is it that this Christian or this church or whatever doesn't do the thing that I expect them to do? And God's like, because I've never asked them to do it. And for those of us that are true believers in Jesus, the call is to walk forward in faith in God, to leave the dead things behind, And to say, Jesus, I want everything that you have for me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I believe he hears and answers that prayer continually for all who would cry out to him.